This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi all, I'm Ikra Shigufta-Chima, your host for the New Books Network. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Lizette Wanzer to talk about her book, Trauma, Tresses, and Truth, which is published by the Chicago Review Press in 2022. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please tell our audience about yourself and your work a little bit? Yes, thank you for having me. So I am a San Francisco-based author, and my work has appeared in over 25 literary uh, journals. I've contributed to several books, and you can also find my work in some uh, magazines. I serve as judge for the Keats Soulmaking Literary Competition, the intercultural essay category. I enjoy presenting my work at conferences across the country, And I like to teach craft and professional development workshops and seminars for creative writers. I also enjoy attending writers uh, or artist residencies. My most recent residency was, it ended October 31st, and that was a month at the Anderson Center in rural Minnesota. Right now, I know I'm here to talk about trauma, justice, and truth, but right now I'm working on my next book, which is called Building a Career as a Literary Artist of Color, based off of the workshop that I teach by the same name. Nice. That sounds fantastic. Very excited uh, to hear about your next project. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this work. How did you start working on trauma, tresses, and truth? So in some ways, this book was a response to the national and really worldwide upheaval in the summer of 2020, which I refer to as the summer of racial reckoning. But what I really wanted to do, my initial aim was to get a panel accepted at AWP. And I had been applying for several years, hadn't been accepted. Then when I went in 2019 in Portland, I attended their session, which is called uh, something like how to create a strong competitive proposal for AWP. Um, So I followed the tools and lessons I learned there and realized that they like a lot of catchy titles with alliteration. So I already had written an essay about experiences with my natural hair. So I uh, convened a panel. There were five of us and called it Trauma, Tresses, and Truth, and they accepted it. So in 2020 in San Antonio, we went ahead and we did that panel. After the panel was over, six people, six women from the audience came up and said, well, where can we buy the book? Do you have it downstairs in the book fair? And of course, there was no book. um, And I didn't think that the idea really had any potency as a book. So I just forgot about that. But then just a couple months later, uh, George Floyd happened and Breonna Taylor happened. And I was extremely enraged for that entire summer when the demonstrations were happening and curfews and marches and all of this stuff. So I thought, you know what, Um, I have to figure out a way to 
process this rage I'm feeling in a healthy way because it was interfering with my everyday um, life. So I thought the persecution and policing of our natural hair is yet another form of oppressive policing and attempts uh, at erasure. So I started writing my book proposal. And by mid-October of 2020, I had four offers uh, from publishers. And um, not sure, I always say I'm not sure that this would happen at any other year, at any other time. Um, but everybody in the fall, after that turbulent summer, was you know, plastering platitudes about we stand in racial solidarity and, you know, we stand with Black Lives Matter and pictures of George Floyd um, pasted all over their windows and so on. So um, as our then president admonished white supremacists to stand back and stand by, um, I met with all four of the publishers and then accepted Chicago Review Press. Thank you for sharing that. Um, how would you describe the book to the audience? So the book is a collection of essays by Afro-Latina and African-American women. It is divided into four sections of essays with a poem opening each of the four sections. So section one I call a critical lens, and that's where the essays are interrogating the topic of natural hair from uh, a more philosophical expository viewpoint combined with some level of analysis while still highlighting the author's personal stories. The essays in section two, which I call the pilgrimage, trace the author's journeys into the liberation of wearing their natural hair and sharing the sense of relief and triumph they feel after making the decision to go natural. And then in section three, which is called Intimate Encounters, the authors uh, bring us into their family relationships, talking about the bonds and the breaks and the unanswered questions that exist as a direct consequence of relatives' criticism of them wearing their natural hair as opposed to a weave or having their hair relaxed or wearing a wig or something like that. And then the book closes with section four, which is called The Unshackled Chronicles. And in those pieces, the authors are speaking about their journeys of wresting their hair from majority culture conformity to embracing it in its natural state as a means of liberation and self-acceptance. Then at the end of the book, the appendix, there's a three-part reader's discussion guide which has essay and short answer questions that are suitable for college students and perhaps senior high school curricula and book clubs. And the reader's guide topics are grouped under three reflections, reflecting on personal experience, reflecting on the readings in the book, and then reflecting on dialectic topics. And then at the end, there's a resource guide, which contains lists of salons that specialize in natural hair, uh, books about natural hair, a sampling of films and uh, also children's books about natural hair, uh, also a sampling of natural hair festivals, uh, and also natural hair organizations. There actually is such a thing. And so that is the book. It is um, suitable for course adoption at universities, 
but it's also suitable for general readers. Great, that sounds fantastic. Um, so in the book, you point to the significance of narrative therapy for healing and black natural hair. Could you elaborate some on that connection? So Dr. Mbilashaka actually coined that phrase as part of her practice. And so she makes reference to that term in her foreword to the book. She's a psychologist and the term refers to a practice of retelling important stories as a legitimate healing modality. So the process invites people, subjects to reauthor difficult, um, challenging stories. And then unlike other therapeutic modes, regards the storyteller or the raconteur as an expert. Um, so I'm not a psychologist, but um, Dr. Mbilishaka's has a practice called um, psychotherapy. And that's a practice where she's combining this narrative therapy practice with actually doing people's hair and helping people to come to terms with their natural hair vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the larger American culture. Great, thank you. Yes, I found the term psychotherapy very fascinating. It was actually my first time encountering that term. And I have a friend who is doing her PhD, but she is doing research on natural black hair and the politics of hair. And like, I instantly texted her to just share this term. And I was like, okay, you know, I just read this book about this. But um, I told her I will bring the book for her when I see her. Um, I'm going to hopefully be seeing her like in the next couple of weeks. So that was really interesting to read. Um, so your book talks about the Crown Act. Could you tell our audience more about the Crown Act, its criticality for black hair politics and the journey from Tignan laws to the Crown Act? So, ah, uh, yes, the Tignan laws. Um, the Tignan laws are an example of how the black body has been a site of political struggle since the antebellum period. Uh, so the Tinian laws were, for those who don't know, they were 18th century laws in Louisiana that Governor Esteban Rodriguez Miro passed to stipulate that Creole women had to wear head coverings to prevent them uh, from in his words, displaying excessive attention to dress in the streets of New Orleans. So the laws basically required these women to cover their natural hair. Um, and today I feel like black women have leveraged uh, legislation, the Crown Act, that was meant to diminish black women and turned it into a powerful statement that now represents a symbol of wearing our natural hair represents a symbol of resistance and pride, celebration and cultural ownership, including the wearing of headscarves and turbans and um, gilets and gilets and so forth. Um, we've reclaimed that now as part of, um, as a fashion expression. So the Crown Act, fast forward to 2019, um, California became the first state to pass the Crown Act, Crown being an acronym, uh, as well as a 
synonym. So crown meaning the hair on our heads. And then the acronym stands for creating a respectful and open workplace for natural hair. So Senator Holly uh, Mitchell introduced this bill in 2019. She was a senator then. She's now she's now a Los Angeles Board of Supervisors member. Um, but she introduced this bill when she was a senator in 2019 uh, here in California. And in part, the bill says that it's going to be illegal to discriminate against natural hair and protective styles like braids and locks and twists and knots. So our state assembly passed it unanimously. And then our governor, Newsom, signed the bill into law on July uh, 3rd. 2020, which is now known as National Crown Day every July 3rd since then. So this bill made California the first state to officially prohibit race-based hair discrimination in workplace and educational environments. Uh, New York was number two, and now we're up to, I believe, 18 states that have passed some version of a Crown Act. Thanks for sharing that. Um, the book transgresses not only the anti-Black hair politics, but in the process also challenges many other white standards. For example, linguistic, cultural, terminological, as we saw um, in the use of small i in the chapter Solistus and Solidified Sugar, and you capitalizing terms like Afro-Latina and Black. Could you speak to the importance of these transgressions to the book and to your goals. So Solstice and Solidified Sugar is a poem that Dr. Um, Rena Leon wrote. And so the use of nearly all lowercase text in that piece is a stylistic choice that the poet made. Uh, she also uses lowercase text in some of her other works. As far as languages go, the inclusion of Spanish, um, terminology, Jamaican and Canadian patois, uh, Garifuna and Portuguese in the book, I see as more of an assertion rather than a transgression. And I would say that the same goes for my choice to capitalize the terms Afro-Latina and African-American. I chose to capitalize them as a form of cultural assertiveness and activism. And uh, I had to explain that to my, my publisher since I was not capitalizing white in this volume. And I chose not to do that as a form of protest against white supremacist websites and publications that do capitalize that word. Um, and because I feel like Afro-Latina and African-Americans um, have been lowercase and hyphenated for far too long. And people of color in general have been lowercase and hyphenated uh, or italicized or otherwise othered in text for too long. So in academic writing and journalism and in other writing circles, there's a quite a healthy debate going on about capitalizing and hyphenating BIPOC terms in 21st century writing. Does it still have a place? Um, you know, should we do it? Should we not do it, et cetera? And there are healthy arguments on both sides of the issue. Yes, thanks for explaining that. So how do you suggest readers approach this book? That will depend on who the reader is. Uh, so while I don't have a particular approach to readers because there are, precisely because there are so many different kinds of them, 
I will say that I want readers who haven't had to contend with this type of discrimination to learn why it's not okay to just walk up and touch our hair. Why it's not okay to call our hair um, unprofessional just because it grows up and out from our heads and not straight down, uh, or just because it's a different texture. Um, neat braids, dreadlocks, bantu knots, etc., are not unprofessional. I want readers to understand why so many Black women um, and biracial women in professional and public life feel pressure to straighten their hair or relax it or get weaves or even to wear wigs, um, do whatever it takes to make their hair look and behave more like Caucasian hair. Um, I want readers to know that it's not okay to send children home from school or to discipline them because they're wearing uh, cornrows, braids, twists, or afros, uh, or anything else, both girls and boys. And I want readers to understand also the significance that our hair plays, not only in our current culture, but in our past culture, including doing slavery uh, before the Middle Passage. And I hope readers will learn to refrain from committing the faux pas and the missteps that uh, I and so many of these contributors talk about in their pieces. Uh, readers should know that, and your listeners should know that, Almost no black women manage to get out of childhood without having a series of humiliating, infuriating, or embarrassing situations arise regarding their hair, either in school or within their families. Very, very few of us manage to uh, get out of childhood without uh, some negative experience regarding our hair in its natural form. And, and you'll see some of that in the book. You'll read about some of those experiences. Thank you so much for sharing these. Um, it was wonderful to talk to you about trauma, tresses, and truth out with the Chicago Review Press. Mm -hmm. And we look forward to interacting with your future work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.